Hey, good morning. Um, my name is Elliot. I'm the pastor here, and uh, it is a joy to have you with us this morning. God's people in God's house, uh, learning and being with each other. If you're visiting, though, not only are we really glad that you're here, um, I hope you feel free to bring your questions to this place. I hope you feel free to bring your sorrow and confusion and doubt to this place. Um, we have plenty of those ourselves uh, here at Midtown, but I promise you that we will not answer all of your questions, uh, but I will also promise you that we can answer some of them. Uh, but mostly we're just glad that you're here. We'd love to get to know you. We'd love to be known by you. And uh, if you got any desire at all to fill out a visitor card, there's some in the back you can drop in the giving boxes. There's some upstairs you can put in the prayer box in the coffee room. Uh, there's lots of ways to kind of take a step in if you got more questions or would like um, to have a conversation. I say all that to say we also welcome the reality and the uh, idea that you may be coming to visit, you may be coming, and you don't want to talk to anybody. <laughs> Uh, the sorrow's too great, the confusion feels too crushing, uh, the season you're in, uh, a new relationship sounds exhausting. Um, and so if you just need to come and take from Midtown for a season, if you need to come and take from Jesus, um, we welcome it. Um, if this needs to be the place where you just sit and uh, cry on the back row, uh, or the front row, wherever you would like to sit. Um, but if you want to come and just be and, uh, and not have anybody talk to you, we'll respect that too. Um, but both things are, are, are open. We'd, we'd love to get to know you. And also, if you don't want us to know you, that's okay too for a little while. So, uh, but we are journeying through the book of Acts as a church body this fall. We're seven weeks in. And briefly, here's what you need to know about the book of Acts and where we've been in the book of Acts to kind of lead up to this moment. The book of Acts is a sequel story. It's part two of a two-part uh, story that Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, set out in his mission to write this document, a two-part document, that would tell the story of the coming of Jesus and Jesus' mission in the world. What did Jesus come to do? And did Jesus really come to do what people say he came to do? And is Jesus really who he said he was? And so Luke sets off to research that, to interview about that, to be a historian, to get to the bottom of the facts. What was the reality? of Jesus' life and why did he come to be who he says he was. So he writes that in part one, the, the birth of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus. And so you start the book of Acts and you go, well, part two is a two-part story. How is the mission of Jesus going to continue if Jesus now has ascended to be with the Father and he's gone? And that's kind of the point. The story of the book of Acts is meant to continue the mission and the story of Jesus in the world through the church. That's actually the church's mission, is to continue the mission and the acts of Jesus, which he began at his coming. And so there is this reality where Luke's going, hey, I want you, church, to not just get a vision of the history of the church and where it came from, but to catch a vision of what mission did Jesus have in the world and how does the church join Jesus in that mission in the world as we continue that mission. So for a time in, in church history, the book of Acts was actually referred to as the continued acts of Jesus in the world but it was through the church, the continued acts and the mission of Jesus through the church. That's the story of the book of Acts. So we're following this church, this, this church that kind of gets birthed at Pentecost, that uh, the Holy Spirit descends and indwells in the, in, the, in the people of God in Jerusalem, and they're commanded to take the story of the Messiah of Jesus and his love for them and his redemption of the world and take it from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth. But where we are in the story, they're still kind of in Jerusalem, and there's been this massive growth in the church, like hundreds and even thousands are coming to know Jesus, coming to place faith in him, the Messiah, and join this kingdom and believing this God. Gospel. And so now where we are, we're in Acts chapter, five, Acts chapter 6. This 
baby growing church has faced some resistance. This baby growing church has been kind of assaulted from the outside. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish rulers in Jerusalem, they don't like this thing that's happening, all these people converting uh, to belief in the Messiah. And then they face some internal resistance. We saw this last week where Ananias and Sapphira had a, had a rough go. Uh, they didn't, they lied, they deceived, they projected themselves, a, a, a version of themselves that wasn't true, uh, and they tried to gain a reputation that wasn't theirs to, to take, and so um, they breathed their last. And so the church is facing this resistance kind of inside and outside, what's going on, and now there's another story in this growing church of how to handle internal issues, how to handle problems, how to handle trial, how to handle the kind of the resistance that there is to the gospel and the kingdom. Most historians think that this story, Acts chapter six, a big page has turned, and we are now about five years into this mission of the church, but we're still just in Jerusalem, about to take steps out of Jerusalem uh, to the ends of the earth. But the point of that is this, this five-year church has in, an, experienced incredible growth, incredible numbers, incredible uh, uh, success, if you will, momentum kind of heading into the mission. And what's amazing about this is that these apostles who are leading this Jesus movement in Jerusalem, they didn't go to Wharton, okay? Like they don't have an MBA. They don't know how to lead an organization. They don't know how to structure an organization. They don't know what they're doing. And what we find today is, is hey, in a growing organization, if you've ever led an organization, built a team, if you've ever built a family, if you've ever been a part of a family that is kind of getting bigger than anyone intended for it to do, our story, if you kind of get, get into that, you realize, oh, this, is, this has challenges that we weren't prepared for. There's challenges to growth. There's challenges to the structure. There's challenges to, well, what we've been doing, how come it's not working anymore because it's growing too fast? That's what we see. Ultimately, what we see is that organizational problems are people problems because <laughs> it's organizations are full of people. And so we've got people that are being neglected and being wounded, being hurt by the growing church. So anyway, here we go. That was a long intro to Acts chapter six, starting in verse one. Just gonna read seven verses of this little saga that the church faced in these early days. So here we go. Acts chapter six, starting in verse one, says this. It says, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12, that's the apostles, the leaders of the church, summoned the full number of the disciples, gathered the church and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Pumbaa. I'm kidding. And <laughs> by implication. <laughs> and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you pray with me before we enter this text? Jesus, we pray now um, as humbly as we can uh, in our finite abilities that you would give us the rare gift of being present in this moment, uh, to be here together in this moment. 
Um, we're so distracted, we're so distractible. Sometimes by our own volition, we don't wanna listen to you. So Jesus, I pray in this moment through the, the mystery and the majesty that is your word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you not just indwell this place like you promised to do, would you open our eyes and would you cause for us in these next few minutes to, um, to be so present that we will leave here uh, declaring the wonders of God that we have seen Jesus together, that we have beheld him, that we have seen his face through his word. We pray now uh, for the one who you've called to teach your word this morning that you forgive him his sins for they are many. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. So a brief summary recap, just as we dive into this story, because I know it's the first time you've probably read that passage this week, unless you're in our small group. It's the second time you've read this passage this week. Um, but here's what's going on. In this early church in Jerusalem, this growing church, this exploding church, because of the annual festivals in, that took place in Jerusalem, not only made up in this church do you have Jerusalem Jews or Hebrew Jews or culturally Israelite Jews who would have been raised around the temple and had Jewish culture kind of embedded in them. You have Jewish Jews, Hebrew Jews. You also have what's known as Hellenist Jews or Greek Jews that came from all over the diaspora, all over the Roman Empire, all over the Greek world that was that the, these Jews that lived in these other towns and in Greece and in Turkey and all over they descended on Jerusalem several times a year for the festivals and they would hear about this Jesus. They would hear about this Messiah, this rabbi that rose from the dead and now they're placing faith in him and they're sticking around in Jerusalem. And so this early church in Jerusalem is made up mostly of Jerusalem and Hebrew Jews. But there is this growing number of Hellenist Jews, Greek Jews from all over the known world that have come and have placed faith in Jesus too. And these people are doing life together. And it's not that there was a whole lot of hatred between the two. There certainly was a whole lot of difference between the two. The Greek Jews, Hellenist Jews had a different language that they spoke, had a different culture, had different values, thought differently about politics and money in the world. Those Jews came into this Jerusalem church and then there were Jewish Jews, Hebrew Jews. They had a different language. They had a way of seeing the world. They had ideas about politics and their city and their country. But all these people together are coming to make this church in Jerusalem, the original first church. And the Part of the reason why Luke tells us this story is not only to show us the diversity that's beginning to happen because of the gospel, he's showing us that, hey, when you bring people together, you bring people into this thing called church, there's going to be differences. There's going to be a kind of a plurality of culture and ethnicities and values and beliefs about the world. There's also going to be a lot of uh, opportunity for people to get left out. None of the commentators, none of the scholars, none of the way that Luke tells this story makes it sound like that the Hellenist Jews, the, the Greek Jews and their widows that were being neglected, none of it was intentional. It's just in this growing reality, there needs to be systems for that. There needs to be administration over that. There needs to be efficiency on ways. How do we distribute the goods? How do we distribute the food and the money and the resources that are meant for the widows? How do we distribute it with equity? How do we make sure in this massive church, potentially 10 to 15,000 people meeting in the temple, meeting in homes, we've got these Greek Jewish widows who have converted to Christianity. They're not getting their needs met. They're not getting treated fairly or equitably. They're being neglected because they're not getting the needs like the Jewish widows are. So a complaint arises. Some of the Hellenist converts come and they say, hey, our widows seem to kind of be the bottom of the totem pole. Our widows kind of seem to be not really taken care of the way that the Hebrew widows are being taken care of. Can you help us, please? What's interesting about this is that these widows would have been brought into the fold, would have been brought into the community 
almost purely based on how well this community took care of widows and orphans and the needy and the marginalized. And so the reason that they came into this community, while these people are providing for my needs, widows have no means of income. Widows have no way to provide for themselves. Oh my goodness, this church community is taking care of me and now they've forgotten about me. So you can imagine the pain and the confusion and the frustration for, wait, wait, you used to take care of me and now it's gotten so big I've been forgotten. Part of the reason to tell this story is that the early church was not all rainbows and butterflies. And so this complaining group, they're not wrong to complain. They're saying, hey, part of the mission of this place is to care for the widow and the orphan. Part of the mission of this place is to care for the marginalized, and it's not happening. Some people are getting things, and others are not. We need to stop right here. Some of you are not Christians. Some of you have experienced church hurt before. Some of you have witnessed church hurt. Some of you have walked away from church and are maybe tipping your toe back in to see if you trust the church again. And I, don't, I, don't, I will not spend any time uh, trying to argue with you about any kind of church hurt or church neglect that you've experienced or witnessed. That's real and that's legit. But I do want to observe something here, and this is not meant to dismiss anything, is that I hope you see, I hope you know, organizations like the local church hurt people because local organizations are made up of people. <laughs> So if you want to join this church, if you want to make this your church home, if you want to explore more about this church, I'm not trying to um, shock you. I'm trying to sober us, sober all of us that would say, hey, if I make this place my home one day here after a number of years, I will probably be hurt by this place. There will be a season where I don't feel like I'm getting what I need from this place. There will be a season where I feel neglected from this place. There will be a season where I feel forgotten by this place. There will be a season where you would probably say, I have some church hurt because of this place. And I want you to know that's not meant to justify anything. What I'm saying that, I'm saying that to you because I want you to know the Bible never glosses over that reality and tries to paint some kind of utopian picture of things. The Bible doesn't hide it or downplay it. In fact, it's verifying it for you. Yes, the church hurts people. Yes, the church messes up. Yes, the church neglects people, intentionally or unintentionally. Yes, the church, even in its earliest stages, Do you know how often in the modern day, like 2,000 years since the church, so many people look back at this stage of the church in Acts and think, man, that's the golden age. Like, that's the way, we gotta get back to the early church. We gotta get back to the way that they did things. Until you read chapters like Acts chapter six and you realize, no, there were still people and people were still hurting people and that golden age still had people getting neglected. That golden age still had people not getting what they needed from the church. Should be refreshingly honest for us to see that the Bible addresses this right from the beginning, in the golden age, with all the growth, with all the miracles, with all the momentum, the church here, the Bible wants you to know about the church is that there are people hurting people, there are people being neglected, and the Bible is not dismissing that hurt. It's trying to show us that, hey, this has always been true about the church. That is not meant to justify it. In fact, the next thing that it shows us in this passage is that not just that, hey, people were hurting people from day one, people were neglecting people from day one. Guess what a healthy church does? Guess what a really healthy, beautiful church does like this passage? The church deals with those problems. The church addresses them, owns them, repents of them, makes changes so that it doesn't keep happening. And that's what we see the early church doing. They're dealing with it. Yes, there have been internal problems since day one, but the church, a healthy church, is meant to be an organization that deals with its issues, is honest about them, doesn't hide them, and addresses them head on. The church does that here in our passage. So here's what we're gonna see today. The way that the church addresses this issue, the way that the church deals with this issue, something happens because of the way they dealt with it. 
A lot of beauty happens and a lot of power happens. Because of the way the church handles their issues in this story, beauty and power explode. And the way that they handle it, here's the, here's the first thing they did. Here's the first thing that the leadership did. It's beautiful. These apostles who had been placed over the early church, they embraced their limits. The leadership embraced their limits. Okay, take yourself back to this early church moment for a second in your imagination. Peter and John, two of the you know, notorious apostles, they're preaching sermons that are converting thousands. This church is growing like crazy. It's spreading like wildfire. And then they, in this momentous moment of this, all this church growth, all this incredible like mega church happening in Jerusalem, some criticism happens, some feedback happens, some, hey, not everything is going according to plan happens. Greek widows are being neglected here. Do you know how easy it would have been for the leadership to completely dismiss this complaint? Who cares about the Greek widows? Do you see the stadium we're filling up? Who cares about all of these problems? Do you see how many conversions are happening? Like, don't drag us down with the problems, Hellenist people. We got growth over here. We have beauty happening. We have awesome things happening over here. Why are you trying to slow us down with this complaint? They don't do that at all. They don't dismiss it at all. They could have come up with a solution that would have been a solution just to get the complainers to shut up. Like, we just be quiet over there? I've got Instagram followers to, you know, get out in front of. Like, I need, my influence is growing. I got a book deal on the line. Like, I can't, you can't complain. Shh, don't, 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 don't say anything about the Hellenist widows not getting what they need. Like, please, no, 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 we got, we got momentum. And your complaining could kill the momentum. They don't do that. The apostles decide not only is this work vital, of caring for the Hellenist widows. It's so critical that the leaders are humble enough to say, we need to appoint others to the role of making sure this doesn't continue to get neglected, which means here's what they're saying implicitly and explicitly. In reality, here's what the apostles are saying, the leaders of the early church, we can't do it all. They're embracing their limits. They're humble enough to say, we don't have all the gifts we wish we did, because here's what the world will tell you. Since day one, since the Garden of Eden, here's what you will be told by every generation of every culture that's ever existed. You can be it all. You can have it all. You can be excellent at everything. You can be a master of anything you set your mind to and your heart to. You need to be amazing at everything you do. You need to have no limits and you need to have no weaknesses. That's what we've all been taught. And then the church here, the leadership of this exploding church in Jerusalem is saying, actually, we can't do everything. Us, the, the leaders, the people guiding the church in Jerusalem, we actually don't need to be amazing. We need to be humble. We need to embrace our limits and say, we don't have all the gifts. These 12 apostles had been commissioned by Jesus to preach the gospel, Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Like Jesus in the flesh had given them their calling. Jesus in the flesh had told them, this is what I want you to do with your life. And so here's what they're saying. Hey, church community in Jerusalem, we've been given a specific calling by Jesus. We have to keep preaching the gospel. That's what Jesus himself told us we must go do. We can't do everything, but we know what we are supposed to do. We're supposed to keep preaching the gospel. That's what Jesus told us to do. And yet we know that the care of these widows, these Hellenist widows is so vitally important. We have to get someone to do it. We can't do it all, but someone can. The apostles wanted a ministry of care for the needy, a ministry of care for the widow to flourish in Jerusalem. They just knew they couldn't be the ones to do it. 
But you need to know, and I heard this a lot from people this week that studied this in, our, in their small groups. We, we study the passage that is gonna be preached on in our small groups. I heard this from lots of people this week that discussed this passage. It seems like these apostles are just acting like every other white male and thinking like they're too important to do hard work. <laughs> like, I'm too important to serve the tables. I need to preach. Like, don't bother me with the hard service work. Like, why does there seem to be this hierarchy from the apostles? And that's not what's going on at all. In no way, shape, or form is there any hint of the apostles regarding this social work care for the widows as inferior to their pastoral work or as less than them or beneath their dignity. Here's what's going on. This decision that the apostles are saying, we need to keep preaching the gospel, but we have to assign others to make sure that the widows are getting cared for is all a matter of calling. Look at verse two, what the disciples say here. You can throw this back up. It says this, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Okay, we hear that and we think, okay, so serving tables, I guess, is inferior then. But what we've done is, is we've applied a little bit of a modern understanding of like serving and waiting on tables um, back onto the text that's 2,000 years old and it's not, that's not how you interpret scripture. <laughs> that I've waited tables uh, but back 2,000 years ago, they didn't have restaurants. That's not what they're talking about. He's not talking about like, we're preachers. We don't have time to be waiters and waitresses. That's not what he's saying. Any food that was being distributed, any food that was being served happened in a home. And servers of tables meant like heads of households. Servers of tables meant like the host of the party. Servers of tables meant like people that distribute the food was a place of great honor. Think of Jesus in the Last Supper, at the, at the Last Supper in the upper room. He's distributing the food because he's the head of the table and there's great honor and dignity in that. Like the head of the village would be the host of the table to serve the table. This was an honor that the only the, the select few would have had Serving tables had immense dignity. Serving tables meant caring for your guests. Serving tables meant throwing hospitable parties. Serving tables meant, I wanna make sure everyone here feels welcome and everyone here has what they need. And that role in that culture was a huge deal. There was a ton of dignity and honor and praise and even public reputation to come with being that role. So here's what the apostles are saying. They're acknowledging we have this role to preach the gospel, but man, we would actually get even more dignity and honor if we could be the ones to serve tables, but we can't do it. We're not actually gifted at that. That's not actually what we've been called to do, but we need to find people who are gifted at that. We need to embrace our limits and do what we've been called to do and get out of the way so that other people can step into what they've been called to do. In fact, the argument could be made that in this tension moment right here, like they didn't have the celebrity pastor culture like we have here, that like they were not saying we are too important to do this work. The argument could be made that this role of serving the tables, getting the food out to the people actually had more honor and more praise and more dignity than the preaching did. They're not saying we're too important for that work. They might be saying we're not important enough for that work. We need other people to be doing this. Do you know that this preaching of the gospel in this time, no one wanted this job. Like Peter's gonna be crucified upside down. John's gonna be tied to the ground and beheaded. Like this is not, no one was like, man, I wish I had his life. Man, I wish I could do what Peter's doing. He's stand up front and you know, do the finger pistols and preach the gospel and everybody's coming to Jesus. Everybody's talking about Peter. No, no one wanted this job. They're saying, this is what we've been called to do. And I wish we could be the ones that are serving tables and getting the public honor and serving the widows and serving the poor. We're just not good at it. We're not the ones that have been gifted to do that. 
The preaching of the word was not held in higher social esteem. Serving of the food was. And so what we have here, what's going on in Acts chapter six is this ministry of the word and the job of hospitality. All this is going on. And the apostles are saying, we know we have to do this, this ministry of the word. We have to appoint others who can do this. This is drilling this passage down for us. That is exactly what we need to be talking about today because this passage is challenging us, is encouraging us, is drawing us in to have a conversation about calling. That God calls all of his people, all the members of his kingdom into ministry. And the apostles here are saying that the administration of that, the implementation of that, the distribution of that in these goods and services of serving the food and giving the goods and the resources and the money to the widows, we don't have those gifts. We have not been called to that. We can't serve tables, but we need people who can. We don't have the gifts of administering this massive operation of making sure that the distribution of goods is equitable and fair and timely and efficient and all those things. We don't have those gifts, but we need to find people who do have those gifts. That like somehow over the last several hundred years, it's come to be believed that like extroversion is a spiritual gift that everybody needs. It's like, I, no, actually like that, that's, like, that's crushing for people. That's actually not what, that, that's not biblical. Neither is the category of extroversion. That's another it's another topic, but like the, the, oh, because you can stand up and talk in front of people because you have that public facing gift and you actually like, like talking to people, you must have a, a deeper spiritual gift. That's not true at all. We, we build Midtown this way at all of our campuses, at all of our locations. I, I believe I've been called and gifted to preach the word and that's about where my gifting stops. <laughs> like I don't need to do anything else and that's not totally true. I won't be self-deprecating. But let me tell you what we have. We have Matt Ackerman who's an executive pastor who can run systems, who can build structures, who can do things efficiently, who can slow me down and say, hey, will you just stick to preaching the gospel and let me build this thing? And then we have Kim Haywood who's our executive assistant who helps all of our departments and ministries with email and shopping and organization and timing and getting things done. Guess who's not gifted at that? This guy with two thumbs, like not good at it, okay? But guess what we need? And it's not that one's more important than the other. It's that the church needs all of this with people to, have, to be, be humble enough to say, we don't have all the gifts. Not anyone has all the gifts. You are not infinite. You are finite. So let's actually call other people into their calling who do have some of those gifts. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 6. You can see the value of this role of calling these people into this administration of distributing the goods in a, in a just way, in a fair way. Look at how the passage is trying to show us how valuable that calling is. Look at verse three. Kyle, you can throw this up there. This is the qualifications they're looking for for these people. It says this, they need to be of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to do this duty. That sentence is showing you this is not a matter of a group. Just find people who like have the time but can't really do anything else. Like just find people who don't have any of the like really important spiritual gifts and let them go do this like dirty work. It's saying, let's find men who are full of the Holy Spirit, who have wisdom beyond anyone else, who can implement this, who can do an efficiency chart and show you this is how this needs to work. Let us take care of this, please, because we've got the Holy Spirit who's gifted us to do this. This was a group of people who had been designed and gifted and called to do this work. And guess what they needed if they were gonna step into that role? They needed the apostles to get out of the way and embrace their limits and say, we don't do this well. We need other people who do do this well because we don't have all the gifts. Now, you may be sitting there completely underwhelmed by the story in the passage. 
But here's what I want us to lean into. Here's the, here's the question on the table for us today as you read this passage about the apostles having the humility to embrace their limits so that other people could step into their calling. Do you know what you've been called to do? Do you know that God has called you into something? That term calling has a lot of history in Christianity throughout church history. The word calling, as I use that word, is literally the same as our kind of modern understanding uh, word for that of vocation. We talk about vocation. It's the same word. Vocation comes from the Latin root vocare, which means to call. It's the same thing. What have you been called to do by the power that's greater than you that would call you into that work? Do you know what you've been called to do? Now, callings can change, certainly. But even if you're not sure what you have been called to do, do you know that you are one, if you're a member of the kingdom of God, you have a call on your life. God calls people into his service. But in Christianity and subtly throughout church history, it began to be, or it's begun to be and continues to be kind of not understood right, that people think, oh, well, pastors and people who are in ministry who have given their lives to full-time ministry, they have a calling. And everyone else just kind of has to figure out what pays the bills and figure out what they're good at and kind of do something vocationally. And then I'm going to feel guilty that I'm not doing like serious church work because I don't have like a serious calling on my life. But that pastor, man, I bet he's got a huge sense of calling. And I would tell you, I do. But the biblical understanding of that is not that only pastors and ministers and people in ministry have callings. It's that any member of the kingdom has a call. It's not the approach of the Bible or this text to believe in some kind of like hierarchical system where important spiritual people get callings and everyone else has to fend for themselves. All Christians, without exception, who are followers of a king who's come to build a kingdom, they are called into that kingdom to serve alongside of that king. And where they are called to serve alongside of that king is whatever space or sphere the king has called them into. And there is no hierarchy here. Please understand this. No job, no role, no calling in the kingdom is more important than the other. Any hierarchical value assessment of the callings is totally man-made, is totally man-imputed. That's not biblical. Just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 when he's talking about the local body and he compares a local community to a body, like a body, no body part is more important than the other. That the finger can't say to the mouth and the, and the foot can't say to the ear, I'm more or less important than you. The body has to all work together and come together using their particular gifts and using their particular calling to actually be the body of Jesus in a particular community. So do you know what you've been called to? What part have you been called to play? Ancients, like our, our fathers and saints before us, they saw this idea as this idea has like taken root in different moments in church history. They saw this idea that no, not just the priest or the monk, like not just those people have calling, but we all have calling. They, they've taken, people throughout church history have taken this idea radically more serious than we do. They see this and this idea as sacred. Do you know why? My particular calling is a specific assignment from the king. And so I don't choose my calling. I receive it. King Jesus, what have you called me into? What have you called me? What sphere of the kingdom have you called me to play a role in? And now I step into that calling with the dignity of one who has been given a mission by the king of the kingdom who is bringing his kingdom to earth and he has an assignment for you and he's called you into it. 
Saints would see this idea as so particular, their calling is so specific, that wherever one found themselves in the kingdom or in the society or in the culture, they receive that with honor from the king. Like to the extreme example, like people way below the poverty line saying, well, I guess for this season, the Lord has called me to be poor and to walk in that sphere with honoring dignity and dependence and humility and not to judge and hate people who are in a different tax bracket than me. He's given me this calling and I receive it with honor. Lord, let me do it humbly and faithfully. So what have you been called to do? Have you been called to be a pastor? I hope not. Have you been called to be a teacher? Have you been called to be a mother? And like the kingdom that you are called to build, the role you're called to play in the kingdom is, I'm going to nurture the heck out of my living room. And I'm gonna raise people in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And, and I don't see that as less than what I used to do when I had a career. I see that as a calling from the king of the universe. And he's placed me in this living room to do something that means something here. Do you know what you've been called? Have you been called to be a boss? Have you been called to be an employer? Have you been called to be a musician? And then it can get really sticky. Have you been called to have cancer? And like to walk that road with the tears and the sorrow and the doubt and the fear and say, and I will do it and I will sing his praises until I die. You've been called to those things. This is what it's talking about. And this is not, it doesn't go quite that dark in this passage, but the reality is there. The apostles were not called to everything. They had to embrace their limits and receive what is our call from Jesus. What our call is means we need to get out of the way and not try to do everything. We receive our calling and then we get out of the way for others to receive theirs. That's what's happening. And no matter your calling, no matter your vocation, no matter the sphere you've been called into for this season, you should see yourself as one on mission with the God who placed you there. (laughs) He is on mission to redeem the world in every sphere And he is on mission to redeem the world through his people, through his church, in the places and spaces he's called them into. So if you get jealous or covetous or bitter about, well, this is my calling, why don't I have that calling? You don't have a problem with your calling or your vocation. You have a problem with the king because he's who called you there. And he has sent you there on mission to join him, to co-labor with him as he is bringing that sphere redemption, as he is restoring what's been broken in that sphere and in that place. Wherever you've been called, whatever you're, if it's a home, a campus, an office building, whatever it is, you should imagine every time you walk into that space that there's a giant banner that only you can see as you walk into those doors, wherever it is, and that banner says this, God is at work here. And you're walking under the banner into your living room. You're walking under the banner into your office. You're walking under the banner into your coffee shop and you're saying, I'm on mission with my king and he's already at work here. And think of the honor that I have that he's called me to work with him here. He's called me to labor with him as we redeem this world together. Can you imagine if a whole community began to embrace their limits like this and then embrace their calling? Do you know how much beauty would ensue from that? Because here's what goes away, the comparison game. Well, you've been called to be a lawyer and you've been called to be an MBA and you've been called to be a mom, but who cares what your salary is? It doesn't matter. 
You've been called to that. How can I encourage you to walk in that space faithfully? How can I quit comparing myself to you and actually see you on mission with Jesus just like I see myself on mission? Now I'm not comparing myself to you. You're doing more important work than I am. What do you need from us that we can help you go on mission with your Jesus in your sphere? It kills comparison. It also makes a bunch of people so healthy because they quit trying to be something that they're not meant to be. You don't have to be everything. You don't have to be called to every sphere to redeem every space. You're not that important. And so it actually makes us a humble, encouraging people to do this together. This is exactly what the 12 apostles are doing here. They're saying with great humility, we can't be everything. The apostles cannot run every system, feed every widow, get to every door, do every funeral. They can't get there, but we can. That's what they're doing for us in Acts chapter six. There's a really helpful framework in this story. Um, it, it takes place, like it, 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 it's on the pages here. A buddy of mine, a pastor friend of mine in South Carolina, Andy Lewis, helped me with this. He articulated this a few weeks ago. We were talking about it. He says, so every Christian, if you imagine kind of concentric circles that get kind of smaller, the big circle, like all of Christendom, the kingdom of God, any member of the body of Jesus that belongs to him, There are things in the kingdom that you and I do not get a vote on that we have to care about. Every member of the kingdom of God has to have some level of care and some level of concern for the poor, for the marginalized, for the widow, for the orphan, for the outcast, for the refugee. Like you are not allowed not to have care about that for the needy, for the downtrodden. Every Christian has to care about that and have concern for that. But you and I are human beings and we're finite. Midtown Fellowship Church, this body of people can't do something about every broken thing in Nashville. We can't. We're not Jesus. But every Christian in the kingdom is called to have concern about every broken issue that the church is called to care about. That's what the Acts chapter six church is doing. When it says in verse five, the decision they made to appoint these people to actually go do something about it, you know what it says? It says the whole congregation that's there, everybody that was called to this meeting, this member meeting, it says everybody was pleased with the decision. Why? Because everybody's supposed to care about this. No one in Jerusalem should have been like, who cares about the Hellenist widows? Send them back to Greece anyway. Like, I don't care about them. No, everybody has to care about this. And everybody was pleased with the decision. But then the circle gets a little bit smaller. Everybody has to care but some are called to take responsibility for certain issues. So some of you have been called to have responsibility in the medical space, in the music space, in the justice space, in the educational space, in the home space. You've been given, not just, you don't just have care for it, you've been called to have some responsibility for it to make sure that things begin to happen there that is that is the ethos and the beauty of the kingdom in that space. That's what we see here. The Acts chapter six leadership, the apostles are going, well, we all have to care about this. Let us take some responsibility here to make sure things happen. So everybody has to care. A little bit smaller group of of that has to take responsibility for things to get done. And then the smallest circle, the inner ring, is that everybody has to care. Some are called to have responsibility and then a few are called to have serious influence on a particular issue that matters in the kingdom serious influence to actually make change happen, to actually do something about it, to actually make sure that that issue is dealt with. That's what's happening here. Whole church has care. Fewer are called to have responsibility to see that something happens. And then seven are elected. You guys go do something about this and make a change happen. And we will support you and we will encourage you, but we can't all do it. In fact, that reality of the concentric circles of like everybody has to care, responsibility, and then influence. We have a story like that here at our church. It's beautiful. You'll hear more about it at the end of the service. 
But one of our ministry partners, we have these ministries that we partner with who help push back the darkness in the things that we feel called to have responsibility for here. One of them is this incredible organization that is waging war with human trafficking in Nashville. N-A-H-T, Nashville Anti-Human Trafficking. And here's their story. The whole church is called to care about this. And then as a church, we've felt called to take responsibility for this and actually do something and support them and give them resources and give them money. But then a few, uh, several years ago, a group of women decided we're called to have an influence here and we're gonna go do something about it. We're gonna go to the streets, we're gonna go to Murfreesboro Pike and we're gonna rescue these girls out of these rings and we're gonna restore them in their dignity and help them survive and thrive in the world based on how much we know that Jesus cares about them. That's what they're doing. It's amazing. But that's happened. Like a group, we all are called to care, then take some responsibility. And now who's going to have influence next to go do something about this? It birthed, it birthed itself. And NAHT is thriving. You'll hear more about it in the service. But NAHT, Acts chapter six, here's what we see happening. As people begin to embrace their limits, we can't do everything. It allowed for others to embrace their calling and beautiful things happen. But beauty doesn't just happen when people embrace their limits. Powerful things begin to happen too. Look at how the story ends, verse seven. Look at how the saga ends. Started with a complaint and then look at how it ends in verse seven because of the way that they handled it. Verse seven, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. The way the church handled this issue gave credence to and gave power to the gospel they were preaching. More people were coming to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And because of the way that they handled this issue of the widows being neglected, more and more people came to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. The way the church functioned, the way the people came to make sure the Greek widows were being taken care of, actually gave credence to the very gospel that the apostles knew they were called to preach. And here's what they're saying. Here's what's being displayed. The body was working so in tandem. They were so displaying that it's not just about the words we're preaching. It's about what are we doing? What are, what's happening in the world? Are people being neglected amongst us? That's not okay. We can't preach this gospel and be hypocrites. We actually know that we need to keep preaching the gospel, but we have to take care of this issue. And so today you'll have people on all sides of all debates, especially religious and spiritual and theological ones. You'll have people on one side say, well, all we need is doctrine. All we need is truth. All we need is just speak the truth for people to believe what's true and then all the problems will be solved. But then you have another side of people that say, no, 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 no. All we have to do is love people, care for them, deal with people. Who cares what the truth is? We have to actually just go love people. And so typically this polarization happens. It's either all truth or all love. But the Bible slams these two together and says, no, you don't get to do that. You actually need truth in love, truth and love. See, real truth isn't truth without love and real love isn't love without truth. How do you show people love? Acts of service, you love them, you perform deeds for them, you incarnate into their world and serve them. How do you show people the truth? You tell them. How will people know the truth if no one tells them, Romans says. But here's what the Bible will not do. These are not two things that you need to try to like balance the scales of and we need a little bit more love and deed and we need a little bit more truth and speaking. No, no, the Bible actually never lets you separate those two things. They are intertwined, interdependent and related. 
If you love people without the truth or just give people the truth without love, you are only giving them half the message of the kingdom. And the Bible says that word and deed, truth and love have to go together. And this can only happen if people embrace their limits so that other people can step into their calling. And when this happens, when truth and love go together, not only do beautiful things happen because the widow gets cared for, the outsider gets brought in, the forgotten gets seen, the needy get, gets their needs met. All of that begins to happen, but it also makes the gospel that's being preached more believable and more beautiful. Because the gospel is ultimately a story where we hear of the ultimate one who embraced his call. That Jesus, the limitless one, who had no limits, decided to put on limits in order to bring the outsider in. In the gospel, we see one who would not let the needy, not let the weak, not let the widow, not let the orphan go unseen and go unloved. Because in the gospel, we see a Jesus who came to us. That yes, Jesus was full of word, full of truth. He came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of repentance. He came saying, you are far from God and you have run away from him. He declared true things about true realities, but his truth didn't stop at preaching. Jesus actually let the truth that he was preaching compel him into the ultimate deed, the ultimate act of love, so that truth and love, word and deed, could go together. Truth and love were smashed together on the cross of Christ. Because here's what you see. On the cross, you see that there is absolutely no reason for Jesus to have to have died unless there was a true reality that meant he had to die. Like if Jesus didn't have to die for you, then God is just some cosmic child abuser. But if Jesus had to die for you, you know what that means? There's some truth there. It means you needed him to because there's some true things about you that you can't change. The truth is in the cross. Truth is out there. Ultimate truth is real. But because Jesus went to the cross to save us, here's the other thing that you see. Not just truth being declared on the cross, unconditional cosmic love as well. Truth and love, word and deed, being held together in a person. And so here, here's, here's the challenge. That Jesus embraced his call, held truth and deed, truth and love together. But here's what we, we leave here with. If you're someone who's wondering what your call is, if you're, if you're wrestling with your call, if you're trying to embrace your call that he's given you, here's one thing I know. All of us with our calls and our vocations, we really want our call to justify us. We want our call to atone for our inadequacies. We want what we've been called to to make us feel like we're something. Give me meaning and give me an identity with my call. And that is not at all what your call was meant to do for you. Jesus has not called you into something that is going to atone for your sin. Jesus has not called you into something that is gonna justify your existence. That's what his call did. Jesus' call is what atones for you. Jesus' call is what justifies you. So before you can embrace your calling, you have to rest in his because if you're gonna step into a calling, embrace your limits, it's going to try to tell you who you are. It's going to try to make you something. But only the Christian can walk into their call and walk into their vocation and say, I don't need this vocation to tell me who I am. I already know who I am. Only the Christian can walk into their call and say, I don't need this call to justify me. I'm already justified. Now let me serve. And so before you embrace your call, would you rest in his? We're gonna do that together as we come to the table. Let me pray and then we'll feast together. Jesus, you've called us to be the church in the world you've called us to embrace our limits and to accept our call would you 
Make us humble enough to receive that. That as you were ripped apart for us, would you help us to rest in your call? Find our identity, find our our atonement and what you've done for us as we go and join you and where you've called us to work and serve in this city. We love you, Jesus, in your name, amen.